I was doing a little brainstorming and I thought maybe it'd be a good idea if I shared with you guys the comments that people are leaving on social media, sending to me in emails or leaving on iTunes. thought maybe it'd be a good way to make people a part of the show. And the first one comes from someone, it's an anonymous user, I'm guessing they live in Asia. It goes like this. Discovering these podcasts was like opening a handmade gift. The interview choices Otis has made are insightful and offer a rare chance to listen to gentle inside stories of creatives discussing moments in their musical lives. Truly interesting. I live in Asia, far away from slide guitar, lightning Hopkins, biker rallies, or porches, but today I was transported. Thank you to whoever sent that. I think it was beautiful, and I think it describes what I'm hoping to do, and I'm probably falling a little bit short of. But if you keep sending in comments like that, I'll do my best to read them on the air. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville, Tennessee as I record this. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Bob Olson. Bob has had a really long, wonderful career in the recording industry as an engineer and a lot of other positions. But today he's going to come on and talk about the time that he spent as the head engineer at Motown Records. You can find out everything you need to know about Bob at BobOlson.com. Bob engineered an album that I made seven or eight years ago, and it was beautiful being in the recording studio when he would start telling a story about Stevie Wonder or Marvin Gaye, and everything would just come to a stop and we'd sit there and listen. And he's a very wise, generous man who's always been great about sharing his knowledge with whoever is interested in hearing it. Bob invited me into his living room here in Nashville, Tennessee, and it was really nice to sit down and catch up with him and record this chat. I have to say I'm pretty excited about sharing it with you guys. Here's Bob Olson. Uh, well, I was one of the only two people that ever held every engineering position at Motown at one point or another. <laughs> <laughs> I've never management, always uh, a mixer, or a mastering, or editing you know it just it varied it and on what they needed uh well how i got how i got the job is i had started hanging out at a studio in detroit on saturdays and i was always too shy to ask them about a job although looking back at it i'm pretty sure that's the only reason they let me hang out was they had the idea that eventually i'd work for them but but i never i didn't really want to risk that relationship by asking for a job and getting turned down so so i uh at one point i 
was looking for a summer job, and I asked the guy that I knew the best, who was one of the engineers there, who was an employee. And as a complete joke, he told me, well, why don't you go to Motown? I hear they're hiring. So being an innocent, I <laughs> went to Motown, which I actually knew very little about. How old were you? I was, oh, God, 17, 18, something. But everybody in our industry was that young back then. It, it, and that's the thing that's kind of weird now is all these old guys. <laughs> <laughs> So you didn't know anything about uh, Motown at all when you went in? Or? So I, I didn't know much about it. I mean, I knew it was a pop record label, and I was a big fan of classical music. And uh, anyway, I went in, and they practically welcomed me with open arms, sat me down at a desk, handed me an employment application, and an IQ test to fill out. <laughs> so I filled that stuff out, and then they said, okay, well, now we'll have you talk to our chief engineer. And so they brought this guy up, and he proceeded to give me a look at the studio and a look at the cutting room. And we got talking, and turned out he was also a big classical music fan. And also, it turned out that virtually everybody at Motown was a big jazz fan, which I also was. And in fact, looking back on it, you you could, you know, Motown was the answer to how do people that are into jazz possibly make a living in music. Because <laughs> that's what everybody had in common. And so I kind of hit it off, and he invited me to a party at his house, and I was a fairly regular visitor to the parties at his house for about a year, and eventually a job did come up as a mastering trainee, and they brought me in, and I was taught how to operate a lathe and, and their whole method of, of cutting the world's hottest 45 singles. <laughs> Apparently, Barry Gordy had gotten burned by stuff that sounded good on tape that didn't sound good on disc. And so he refused to, as I understand, he refused to have a tape machine in his office. And he want, he only wanted to hear discs. So we cut acetates of absolutely everything that he was going to hear. When you mastered something, were you mastering with the idea of it being a 45 or, you know, on, on vinyl? Or were you mastering with the idea of what it would sound like on the radio? Uh, well, we were... Mastering with the idea of it being a 45, we were concerned with what it sounded like on the radio, but we were far more concerned with what it sounded like in the programming meeting where they decided if it was going to go on the radio. And back then, people had pretty high quality playback systems for those meetings. And so 
So we were actually pretty concerned with that it sound good on a really high fidelity system as well as sounding good on the radio. These meetings took place in radio stations across the country? Across the country. They still do. From what everybody has always told me who, who worked with him, and certainly what I saw, was that he was somebody who wanted to have the party around him at all times, wanted to have people around. And he would buy drugs for the people that were hanging out with him, but nobody ever really saw him do any. <laughs> so Marvin Gaye would throw the party. But. So, so basically he was into throwing the party and wanted an entourage around and whole thing. He was somewhat, I think he was somewhat frustrated because his real goal was to be more in the Frank Sinatra or Tony Bennett vein than, than a soul singer or a, a pop star or anything like that. I mean, that was really... You know, you had, again, this jazz fan mentality. And they had originally tried to do something like that with him and never been able to do anything with it. And so they wound up doing pop records. Did you work on What's Going On? Yes. Any memories of that? Well, one was certainly the Eli Fontaine's saxophone intro, which... Basically, he came in and ran down the tune, and uh, I, I happened to be there. I think I was, I don't remember exactly, I think I was running the tape for another guy. And anyway, they ran it down, and as we were often prone to do, we hit record on the rundown, since you could always erase it if it was messed up. And Eli noodled his little part, and Marvin sent him home. He never did the take that he thought he wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> and Marvin, in some interviews, said that God produced that record, and I have to concur because the the well the single happened over a torturous long period of time. But they didn't really, they thought it was, well, from what I understand, Barry Gordy just could not picture a Marvin Gaye fan buying that record. And so from his point of view, Marvin was trying to start his career all over again for a new audience. <laughs> and Barry was very skeptical of that. And he was skeptical of it partly because it was somewhat jazzy and I mean, you know, it was like, it's like, don't make it too artistic. Because <laughs> I don't think we'll make any money. <laughs> so, so he went into it with that. And then finally it got released because one of the terms of Marvin's contract was that they had to release a certain number of records over a certain period of time or he was out. And they hit, they hit the deadline, and they didn't have anything else to release on him. And one of the guys in the A&R department, he said, well, you know, I think it's pretty good. Why don't we, we can't lose anything by putting it out. Let's 
put it out and see what happens. So we put the thing out, and a couple of weeks later, the thing's number five on the chart. <laughs> and we get the, well, where's the album? <laughs> what album? <laughs> so that album, the rest of that album was written, recorded, and mixed in two or, two or three weeks. <laughs> Was Barry Gordy quick to admit that he was wrong in situations like that? Yeah. That is a wise man. Yeah, I mean, it, it spoke for itself. I'd really, really like to have you talk about Benny Benjamin, James Jamerson, Bob Babbitt, you know, whoever else. Just the players don't get talked about enough, I think. Okay, well... Benny, unfortunately, I didn't get to work with that much. I was still doing mastering at the point that he died. But when I got into mixing, the first stuff I was doing were like TV tracks to accompany the artists if they had a TV show and there was no way to, there usually was no way to have a band. And so they would make up a track with, with the backing track for them to sing with on TV. And so I got to mix some of those. And the fascinating thing was that if you took Benny's track out, the whole thing would fall apart. Complete train wreck. <laughs> Put those drums in and son of a gun, there was the hit record. <laughs> so to say that he, he was integral to it is, is the understatement of the, century i mean you know the guy the guy had a way of of tying things together that was just amazing and they only really managed to replace him by uh well they went for about a year without any hits fortunately they still had stuff they could put out over that period but in terms of recording any new hits they went for a while without any and finally, they came up with a formula of two drummers and a tambourine to get the groove right. To replace one man. Yeah. And that was simply because two drummers and a tambourine, it was either solid or it was a complete train wreck, and there was nothing in between. So it, it polarized the time. It had to be right or it was way wrong. And and that kind of also forced the other players to get their act a lot more together than it had been in the early days because I think they had been kind of, of coasting on what Benny could tie together. Is it true that um, they kept his drum kit there after he died and kept using it? And Yeah, they well, it was totally bizarre. He... Well, uh, well, first off, <laughs> Benny, like a number of the guys, was a real character. And one of the things that he would often do is he would take his kit to the hawk shop and hawk it. And a producer had to know which hawk shop to go pick up the drums at before the session. <laughs> <laughs> And that was kind of a game <laughs> that he had going. 
So first off, you had you had that interesting situation, <laughs> and second, uh, after he died, a lot of the producers became real paranoid, and they didn't want his drum kit touched. Well, for us engineers, that was a real pain in the neck because each additional song, those heads became deader and deader and deader, and the drums sounded worse and worse and worse. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, the way we got around it was we got them to buy us another set of drums, and we could give producers a choice between a modern good drum sound or or the sort of dying set of Rogers that had Benny's name written on the drum heads. And James was another real character. The great irony is that he, he wanted, he really saw himself as a jazz player. He was very resentful of playing an electric bass rather than an upright. And his whole approach to bass playing was to basically take an idea for a phrase or something that would really come out of the a cappella bass singers kind of a part, which typically the songwriter would give him an idea of how that would work. And then James would improvise on that. He would never play the same thing twice, ever. (laughs) Unheard of. (laughs) And it would always be incredible. (laughs) And so so that was him. In fact, an amazing thing on coming here to Nashville was getting to work with Reggie Young and realizing that there is the Jamerson of the guitar. Exact same thing. He will never play the same thing twice, and it will always be absolutely incredible (laughs) and it would have been amazing if the two of them had ever gotten to play together but anyway that uh james and benny were really kind of the heart of the whole thing you once told me that um that stevie wonder would um he would learn different parts he would mimic other people that he thought were yeah. great players. Can yeah. you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well he's he's a he's a musicologist of the first category. He had studied every kind of especially American music and he knew the sound of all the great jazz players and great musicians and and his approach to playing all the parts himself was basically to put together his own dream team of musicians. So it was really way more sophisticated than a lot of people assume was going on. It it was pretty amazing. And I got to work on a number of his very first productions. He could visualize exactly what he wanted to do, and he would work at it until it sounded like that and it, and because it was i mean it wasn't in this kind of a, i mean today you see a lot of people doing that and they're in this abstract okay well what is the best part well he wasn't coming from there at all he was coming from where what would so and so do 
Who were some of the people he was emulating? And he was emulating, well, Benny Benjamin <laughs> for drum parts. And he had his own kind of fantasy keyboard bass thing going. I mean, certainly Jamerson was a bunch of it, but it was also other people. And he played the guitar parts on the clavinet. And he did a lot of clavinet because he was the only person there who could tune the damn thing. (laughs) (laughs) You'd get him a screwdriver and pull pull the thing apart and (laughs) wail on the the thing used had had like screws that tensioned the strings and he'd go through and he'd tune it. A lot of people didn't know that. <laughs> and they'd try to use a clavinet on a session. <laughs> and it didn't work out for them. <laughs> <laughs> and he, uh, oh, gee, he did so, so many things. And, I mean, and the guy worked hard. I mean, I mean, he wasn't this kind of a person who just everything he touches turns to gold. I mean, he worked probably, he, I mean, he's definitely the hardest working musician I've ever seen. I mean, he worked very hard. He has, has incredible standards of what he wants and what, and what got, got released was a small percentage of, of what he was messing around with. Because, I mean, at any given time, he'd have maybe 20 songs going that he was working on writing, and he'd finish two or three a week and start another four or five. (laughs) I mean, you know, just colossally prolific. And then of those, he would only finish up the ones that seemed to, that he thought were good. Did you work with Diana Ross at all? Very little, very little. By the time I got in the studio, they were so huge that pulling her off the road would cost a fortune, and so they tended to record her wherever she was. They'd send a tape out, and by then we were, well, by the time I actually got into the studio recording, we were 16-track, and there were a lot of, at least eight track studios around the country. And so we could send an eight track, fly an eight track tape out to wherever she was. And they could record that way. Was she at all difficult? Not from what I've heard. I don't know. People, people project all of these myths. I mean, another one, David Ruffin was an absolute gentleman. I saw I mean, he he got into a fight with his band, with his group, and they wound up parting company. But uh, I I was appalled by the the movie about them that <laughs> showed him as being some kind of an egomaniac. That was definitely not what I saw. Well, I will say it is was consistently the smartest group of people that I've ever encountered. I mean, just 
utterly brilliant people. And that, I mean, I was one of the least. And in fact, that's where I learned my trick is to always want to be the dumbest, least experienced person in the room. <laughs> that's the secret of my success. <laughs> oh, it was fabulous. In fact, I, I mean, what was funny was I didn't fully appreciate Motown until I was working with a rock band in San Francisco and we signed a deal with Capital. I read the Capital contract. <laughs> <laughs> And I had tended to believe all the nonsense about Motown not being good to artists until I read that contract. <laughs> and then I suddenly realized that Barry Gordy was probably the most generous record label owner <laughs> in history. Only nobody knows it because he, he did things differently. I mean, he, he had not had experience... He had produced things for other labels, but he had not actually worked at another label and didn't have experience with how things were conventionally done. So we didn't do things in a conventional manner. We did things in whatever manner he found solved the problems that we had at hand. And that was utterly brilliant. I mean, he, I mean, for example, he was having trouble getting records on the charts, so he hired the guy that invented the charts at Billboard to be our head of promotion. <laughs> that is brilliant. <laughs> and, I mean, and that's typical of this man. <laughs> I mean, every detail of it was whatever way he figured out to solve whatever was standing between where he was and where he wanted the artist to get to. And the company was also misunderstood because it was really a management and publishing company that had its own label. It wasn't a conventional label in that sense. Uh, Motown very managed all of the artists and published all of the songwriters and in a lot of ways, in, I mean, in today's music world, Barry would probably be considered a co-writer of half of that stuff. I mean, you know, the writers got massive levels of feedback and their stuff picked apart and put back together and refined. And, I mean, it, it would have been an incredible school for a songwriter, I would think. Is it true that the songwriters would have to get together in rooms and write five songs a day? Uh, that happened some. I mean, if they, if they, I mean, one of the interesting things we had was we knew some guy who had a connection to get a shot at any cancellations on the Ed Sullivan show, which was probably the most important TV show for breaking a new song that there was. And so when there'd be a cancellation, we'd basically go, okay, well, which artist do we want to put in there? And if we didn't have a new record on them, by God, we'd write one. <laughs> <laughs> and those, those were pretty exciting because, 
I mean, you know, you got a bunch of people together in a room and you came up with something that worked and and it, I mean, it was an amazing process and it was timely. I mean, that's that's the thing I keep trying to get across to people today is that what was on the radio back then had often been, only been written a couple of weeks before it went on the air. And today, it's a year or two between the time somebody writes a song and the time anybody hears it out there. And and a whole lot of what made music so exciting back then is that it was timely. It was, you know, it was very influenced by the news, by what was going on around people. And it was relevant to the context of people's lives right there. I mean, what, one thing that we had in common is that, that Nashville and Memphis and Detroit were kind of all branches of the Chicago record business. And Chicago was really the center of, of the recording industry at in the 30s and 40s. Interestingly, somebody told me that was because the Lake Michigan sand was an integral component in the shellac records, and it was cheaper to press the records <laughs> in the Chicago area and ship them around the country than ship the sand around the country and then ship the records. <laughs> <laughs> Is that true? So I, that, that very possibly is true. That's beautiful. That certainly makes sense. And Chicago was a big deal because, uh, of course, your Sears Roebuck was there, and your I mean, they it was really the the merchandising hub of the United States. First ad agencies were there. And a lady named Judith Waller invented what we think of as broadcasting in Chicago. She'd been a librarian who moonlighted as an ad copywriter for a local newspaper, and the newspaper decided they wanted to get in on this new thing and build a radio station. And the owner of the paper had this idea of having her program it she was real bright and so so she proceeded to dream up radio programs and in the process invented everything from the play-by-play sports cast to the situation comedy (laughs) (laughs) it's really an amazing story that doesn't get out much although i know a little piece of it because I started out in a radio drama program in junior and senior high school. And my teachers in those two programs were two women who had been producers at NBC. And knowing them, I knew that that they had gotten canned when the guys came back from World War II. (laughs) And after reading the history of 
Judith Waller, I realized that early broadcasting actually had had lots of women working in it. And that this whole male domination thing was a post-World War II phenomenon. Because <laughs> the government gave a, a substantial tax break to people who hired veterans. <laughs> so that's how it became so male-dominated. I was lucky. I got to learn the basics of microphones from women. <laughs> and Motown certainly didn't care about sex anymore than they cared about race. It was all about, are you good enough? And... uh so I I had really had no idea it was so male dominated really until after I left got to San Francisco. Tell me about when you first met Michael Jackson. Uh well, my first impression was poor kid. <laughs> I mean, he had all of these adults around him with all these expectations and and real bad case of the stage father and real I mean it I mean unfortunately I mean Stevie Wonder had a mother who was not nearly as intense but you know there's you there's usually a parent behind these child stars and so I, that was one of the things that struck me. And then the other thing was I just, when I heard the first single, I just didn't get it. I, it, it just, I, it just wasn't as melodic and, you know, I just wasn't sure what to make of it. It, it didn't make sense to me. But of course, <laughs> looking back now, do you see it differently? Uh, in a way, although you know, I think it, I think they could. I think their first stuff could have been better. I I think that they were able to capitalize on the age of the kids and what they looked like, and I think the. I mean, we saw what Michael could do later on. I, mean, I, th I think there was probably a lot more talent to be found there. Than, but I mean, again, they were sensational performers, and they had—I mean—they had already been doing very well at the Apollo before Motown ever <laughs> got near them. In fact, as I understand the story, Barry Gordy had to be dragged kicking and screaming into. <laughs> Even checking them out because he'd already been through Stevie Wonder and the challenges of a child star. At United Record Pressing Plant here in Nashville, I yeah. remember doing a tour years ago through there, and they took me upstairs, and there's a room that still looks like it's fashioned in 60s garb, and they said that when Barry Gordy would come down uh, to 
in business meetings or whatever. He wasn't able to get a hotel room in Nashville as a black man at that time, so he would stay there. Yeah. Well, the the artists stayed there when they came through Nashville too. But the backstory of that is that is that Barry Gordy owned half of that company, and I didn't know that either and until I moved here. I knew we sent them masters. <laughs> But I didn't realize that he was actually an owner of the company. And an interesting part of that story is that apparently they were one of the main pressing plants for VJ Records. And VJ Records was taken under by Capital taking the Beatles back. And the distributors all not paying as a result. And so it could be that the, the president of VJ became the head of artist management at Motown after VJ went under. And so it could well be that that was how Barry became half owner of, of United Record Pressing. He basically saved them from bankruptcy. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to ask you about that Martin Luther King album. Can you tell me how that came about, that that came to Motown, and then what it meant to the company? Uh, well, I mean, there were, there were two or three of them. And our head of publicity, beginning somewhere around 67, 68, was a man named Junius Griffin, who had actually been a speechwriter for Martin. And everybody had been very involved in supporting King. And, I mean, Barry's view of the company was that it was to be an integrated company. I mean, ruthlessly integrated. It it was not a black company. He did not have any intention of allowing it to be a black company. That was not what it was about. It was about integrating african-americans into the rest of society i mean that was really the orientation and so i mean it just kind of fell in line doing that and then they they actually donated the albums to the family the king family the king family actually controls the copyrights on all of that (laughs) so it, it was it was handled very nicely and we did a certain amount of editing to tighten up the rhythm of it. And, and I mean, I don't think anybody, they, I think he actually gave them notes. I think they'd transcribe it, send it to him and say, okay, what do you want reworded or taken out? Or So I think they worked from note. I don't know. My, my friend Larry did most of the editing and, he unfortunately passed away last year. So, Did you guys have any idea of the historical significance? Of- Absolutely none. None at all. We had no idea. Any? I mean, we thought we were making boy band records. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, we loved music. We were, I mean, we were able to do the, the King thing. I mean, that was a real high point. And they did a few jazz records, and that was a big deal. And But there was absolutely no idea that 
the people would be listening to it for decades and and there was no i mean the context the i mean the quality of songwriting coming out of new york nashville and hollywood at that time was so high that i mean we had no i mean we you know we were trying to get ourselves up to that level we we <laughs> you know it, it was we were aiming always aiming beyond where where we were that was really kind of the whole mentality in fact somebody a few years ago i met a guy who had been in the fights and he told me something that explained a whole bunch he said he said well when you're in training to be a fighter first thing you're taught is that if you bring any ego into the ring at all you'll go right down <laughs> And the one thing about Motown was Barry was totally intolerant of ego. I mean, you, if you were too full of yourself, forget it. You were, weren't going to get very far. And everything any of us did, somebody else was checking. There was no, I mean, it was a, a team effort absolutely all the way. In fact, it, it, it's always felt kind of weird to take any kind of credit about it because I mean, you know, I mean, we, we were part of an absolutely remarkable team of people doing this. I've, I've never seen anything resembling it elsewhere. That's where it's always come from. I mean, Motown actually started with Smokey was part of a group of kids that would go around and do house concerts when they were in high school. And the early Motown artists all came out of that scene. They were playing parties for themselves. And oh, they would do acapella. From what I understand, they would do like acapella. You know, everybody would sing a song and everybody would vote on who was the best. And I mean, it was... It was competitive. That's the other odd thing about today is that there's backbiting, but there isn't much real competition. Whereas back then, anything in music was competitive. I mean, if you were in the band, you were your first chair or you were tenth chair. or I mean, you know, it was, the nature of music was very competitive back then. I mean, our problem is they got so darn good at marketing that the record's been skipping since the eighties. <laughs> I mean, it's just been to me, mind bogglingly little innovation and you get people that are scared of being themselves. I mean, the thing I loved about you was that you were real. <laughs> yeah, I'd rather be somebody else, but this is all I could be. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> But I mean, you know, that's that's the thing you're always going to be best at is being yourself. Well, and, I appreciate. Thank you. I appreciate that. And when people are trying to be what they aren't, they, they wind up being nothing. Well, I mean, they may. Well, some of them get pretty far, but it it just doesn't doesn't come across it doesn't have the that heart-to-heart -heart thing i mean like we when you first came in we were 
we're saying it's a, it's a, you know, it's like there's the performer's mouth and there's the listener's ear, and it's a matter of getting all the crap out of the way in between the two. Amen. And I mean, that's really what we were doing at Motown. That's what what everybody was always doing. It was always about the engaging the listener. That's what everybody lived for. Not about impressing anybody, but engaging them. Yeah. Well, thank you, Bob. Okay. I appreciate it. It <laughs> smells like your dinner's done. Yeah. It's about dinner time. I appreciate you inviting me into your living room and putting up with me. Yep. Well, hey, I'll go back to watching politics. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Bob for inviting me into his living room in Nashville, Tennessee. You can find out everything you need to know about Bob at bobolson.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com, and you can pick up a CD, a T-shirt. You could buy one of my photographic prints that would look great in your house. You could download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of Amy's records. You could buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review, or leave a comment. Anything that you leave there helps us move up in the search rankings and will help a lot more people find out about this show. But if you enjoy this show, you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us an email, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I might even read it on the air. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.